Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and The Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of The Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest. I know you're a big fan of his, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yes, I have been looking forward to this conversation a lot because I love your book, and then you've got all these offshoots and other books. And so Bob Berg is uh, just this incredible motivational inspirational guy who i've been looking forward bob i've been looking forward to meeting you welcome to our show thank you so much wow what an introduction thank you <laughs> she's, yeah, she's a natural so she's a professional host go what, <laughs> i can what, tell we just had we just had uh uh people from duck dynasty on so we're used to interviewing celebrities but go ahead kim with your first question yeah so bob you're doing it you know, some people want to do it. Some people want to motivate others. Some people want to inspire others, and but they don't ever do it. They don't ever get to that next point of actually doing it. And you've inspired, motivated, changed lives. I don't even know how many thousands of lives. What got you going in all of this? Uh, well, you know, actually, I started out as a broadcaster, first in radio doing sports. And then um, I was a... Uh, the late night news guy for a, a very, very small ABC affiliate in Midwestern United States. Uh, I was not very good at it. Uh, I could read the news. I mean, that's not a, a but I certainly was not a journalist. And I found that uh, I soon graduated into sales, um, but I knew nothing about sales, not on a formal basis. So for the last for the first few weeks, I really floundered. I mean, I, actually, the first few months, I had just no idea what I was doing. So I, I could make a lot of calls. Uh, I could see a lot of people, but uh, it, it certainly wasn't very effective. Uh, Jim Rohn, one of the great speakers of all time and business philosophers, would have described that as I had the motivation, but not the information. Right. And that's important. Right. Now, information without motivation still doesn't doesn't work. But so you've got to have both. Well, I didn't have the information. And then one day I was in a, a bookstore uh, and I was looking for something I didn't know what. And I remember this is 40 years ago. And back then, books on sales and personal development were not something anybody knew about unless you knew about it already. So I really didn't know what I was going to find. And I saw these two books. One was by Zig Ziglar and the other was by Tom Hopkins, two of the the icons in the, you know, the sales space. Uh, and I I was just, just the fact that there was some, uh, Tom Hopkins' book was called How to Master the Art of Selling. And I thought, whoa, really? I mean, there's a way to do this? So I got their books and uh, I, I like to say I didn't read them. I devoured them and mm -hmm. I would just study night after night after night. As soon as I got home from work into the wee hours of the morning and I'm highlighting and underlining and taking notes and practicing and oh, within a few weeks, my sales began to go through the roof. Now, what that said to me was that if you have a, a methodology for doing something, if you have a system for doing something, and personally, I define a system as the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how-to principles, the key being predictability. If it's been proven that by doing A, you'll get the desired results of B, then you know all you need to do is A and continue to do A and continue to do A, and eventually you'll get the desired results of B. So once I had that, I had a lot of confidence, right? But but then what was great, and this is what was so fantastic, I, yeah, I began to love sales, studied sales, but I soon found out it wasn't just the how-to, as important as that is, it was really building yourself as a person 
from the inside. And that's where the personal development books began to come into play. And they were, you know, so I was getting the books that I was recommended. Uh, yeah, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Magic of Thinking Big, Think and Grow Rich, uh, Psycho Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz, the, you know, greatest salesman in the world by Mandina. And I just, I, it was like, you know, I wasn't a good student. I barely graduated high school. I got into college, a small state college. I got in on academic probation, and I'm pretty sure I graduated on academic probation if such a thing exists. <laughs> so I was not a student. It was only when I got into sales that I began to be a student, really, of life. And that was the difference maker. So I just loved it. And as my sales success began to grow and eventually work my way to sales management of a, another company, I started showing other people how to do what was working and, uh, you know, eventually began a business where I started started teaching. So teaching sales. So it, it was sort of that combination of, uh, you know, sales, of, of teaching and entertaining, which you right. know, I love. So that, that, that was pretty much that. And so, Bob, when I think about this specifically enough where the sales light bulb went on for me about two years ago, like, or I'd say maybe a year and a half ago, before that, I was okay at sales, felt all right at it. Now it's like, it's easy because you figure out a system, you figure out what works, you figure out how you get to have conversations and you learn from that process. Mm -hmm. And you say, and then you have the confidence. Confidence is such an important thing in anything we do. If we don't have confidence when we show up, we're not going to get results ever. No. And, you know, a lot of that confidence has to do with, with understanding the value that you bring to the other person. Because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody, and I, and I say this when I speak at sales conferences, nobody's going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet right? They're not going to buy from you because you need the money. And they're not even going to buy from you because you're a really nice person. They're going to do business with you. They're going to buy from you because they believe that they will be better off by doing so than by not doing so. You know, Neil, in your days in the ring, you know, the, the fans didn't show up because you wanted them to show up. They showed up because they felt they were going to receive the kind of entertainment, the kind of action, the kind of showmanship, the kind of everything that went into a, a really, uh, um, you know, a demonstration of excellence when you think about it. And, and so, you know, and, and it's the same and, you know, Kim, I know you have a huge audience and, and they're not showing up because you want them to, they're showing up as you're giving them great value and they love that. Right. And so I think that confidence comes from understanding the value that we bring to others. That that's really what it's all about. I love that. I love the way you just put that, Bob, that makes so much sense. And um, those are great words that I just wrote down. And I'm going to be using myself. I'll, I'll, I'll give you credit for it. But, um, <laughs> but those are great words, great words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And people do need to recognize their value for sure. And so, so that they can understand their purpose, so they can understand where they're going in life. But I love, love, love the go giver. I love the just everything around that, because right. it's so true. When you give just the universe gives back to you. I, I do a lot of work in uh, developing nations. And I always feel like when I go there, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going there to serve. I'm going there to work, but I can't outgive. Like I'm not going there to get, but I always get so much more than I can possibly give. And uh, what, what a concept is that? And you've been out there teaching that, that the joy first of all, of giving and, and the return on giving. Um, but, well, it, but it has to come from the heart, right? 
Yeah. And, and one reason that you receive so much from when you go into these other countries and do the work you do is because it's congruent with your values. And I believe that, you know, happiness, which can be defined as the mental feeling of well-being, and I think that's a good definition, that's a dictionary definition, uh, you know, I take it a little, little bit further in that, and I say that, uh, that happiness is a genuine and ongoing feeling of joy and peace of mind, the result of living congruently with one's values. So mm. when you're doing things that are congruent, that align with what you hold to be important, what you hold to be of value, uh, you know, you, you can't help but be happy. Exactly. When you do what you love to do, it's it doesn't feel like work and you want to keep yeah. doing it. And you have that drive the every day to go out and do it. And I think that the giving part is such an important thing. The more you give to someone, the more they're going to give, you're going to get back from something. We don't know what it's going to be. It might not be from that same person, but giving gives you that motivation of what you're doing for somebody. So kind of explain giving in sales. How do okay, you give so in sales? This is, yeah. And it's a great question because, so when we talk about giving in the sales um, context, we're talking about providing, you know, constantly and continually providing immense value to others. Now, what does this really mean? What is the value? Well, let's look at value in relation to price, because a lot of people think the two are the same and, and they're not. Um, so price is a dollar figure. It's a dollar amount. It's finite. It is what it is, right? Value is the relative worth or desirability of a thing, of something to the end user or beholder. In other words, what is it about this this thing, this product, service, concept, idea, or what have you, that brings so much worth or value to another person that they will willingly exchange, let's say in this case, their, their money for this value and feel great about it while you make a very healthy profit. May I share a, a very quick yes. example that, okay, so you hire uh, an accountant to do your taxes. And she charges you, and we'll just name a round figure, $1,000. That's her fee, literally her price, $1,000. But what value does she give you in exchange? Well, through her years of hard work, her experience, her competence, and, and her desire to get to know you and your needs, wants, and desires, getting to know your business and how it works. She's able to save you uh, $5,000 in taxes. She also saves you countless hours of time and she provides you and your family with the security and the peace of mind of knowing it was done correctly. So she's given you well over $5,000 in, in value in exchange for a $1,000 fee or price. She gave you more in value then she took in payment. So you both won. You both profit. In fact, one of my old mentors, Harry Brown, used to say, in any free market-based exchange, and when I say free market, I simply mean no one's forced to do business with anyone else. In any free market-based exchange, there should always be at least two profits, the buyer profits and the seller profits, because each of them come away better off afterwards than they were beforehand. Now, here's the, the challenging part, though. That yeah, what she did was was fantastic. It was it was great. She gave you much more. But every other accountant can basically say they're going to do the same thing. So what distinguishes her, right? And this is and and remember, un, until even if she can do it better than someone else, until your potential customer or client understands the difference between you you and any other provider, um, they don't know. 
right? And unless they know, it's always going to come down to who has the lowest price. Uh, and unless your last name is uh, Walmart or or Amazon.com, trying to make low price your unique selling proposition is not a, a productive way to do business. It's not, excuse me, it's not profitable. Uh, it's not, um, uh, it's not sustainable, right? And so when you sell on low price, you're a commodity. When you sell on high value, you're a resource. So the question becomes, how do you communicate that additional value if basically what you're doing is kind of a commodity, right? Uh, well, the quick and the short answer is this is where you need to be that additional value, right? Because they're buying you before they're buying your service, before they're buying your, your company. So, so how? Well, the good news is there are dozens, if not hundreds of ways to communicate that additional value, but they tend to come down to five, what John David Mann, and, and I'm a John David Mann's my, uh, the co-author of the Go-Giver series and just a great guy and fantastic writer, um, what we call five elements of value. Uh, none, these are not the five laws of value in the book, which are which are the laws of value, compensation, influence, authenticity, and receptivity. These are five elements of value just within the law of value, right? And the five uh, the five elements of value are excellence, consistency, attention, empathy, and appreciation. And to the degree that you can communicate one or more, hopefully all five of those elements of value at every touch point. So from the, the moment you meet that person through the relationship building process, the follow-up and follow through the sales process, the referral process, to the degree that you can communicate those five elements of value, that's the degree that you take price and competition totally out of the picture. Oh my gosh. Um, such words of wisdom. The, thank you so much for that. But you're absolutely right. Uh, it makes such a difference. Like if you think about the people that you want to do business with, the people that you're drawn to do business with, they're authentic. They truly care about you. You can tell that they're being honest and that they actually care and they're going to walk you through the whole process. And And so the value is so much greater than just meeting somebody and and it, it's just a product. And so sure. I, it, it's just so great. And so in that, then there's a lot of giving. You're giving of yourself to sure. the other person. and But authentically, authentically, I, I think is key, right? So uh, how does somebody do that? Uh, how does somebody make themselves authentic, like really get it in their heart instead of just in their head and just thinking about what is in it for them in the end? Sure. Well, you know, in the in law number four in the story is the uh, the law of authenticity. And in this part of the story, uh, Deborah, the mentor in that part, shares a very important lesson. And that is all the skills in the world, the sales skills, technical skills, people skills, as important as they are, and they are indeed all very, very important. They're also all for naught if you don't come at it from your true authentic core. But when you do, when you show up as yourself day after day, week after week, month after month, people feel good about you. They feel comfortable with you. They feel safe with you. And why wouldn't they? They know who they're getting. That's where, you know, the consistency comes into play because people want... 
people have a need. It's, it's an aspect of human nature. We have a need to be able to, to understand our world, this in a world which is often very difficult to understand. We try to make sense of our world in a world that often doesn't make sense, right? And we crave that consistency. And with that consistency comes trust. So we have to ask the question, if, if being authentic is such a good business principle, why do some people not show up authentically, but instead kind of show up as a, uh, I think the, the correct Latin term would be phonus balonus, right? And, and I, I, you know, and, and we might be tempted to say, well, they're just not honest or they're trying to pull one over on people. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, it's a big world, so there's all sorts of people, but I don't think that's usually the case. I, I think typically when you see someone really not showing up authentically, it has more to do with the fact that they just don't have the self-confidence to do so because it's difficult to show up authentically when you don't feel you have anything worthy of showing up authentically for. Wow. And, and, and what can be so difficult about this, and I think we all, this happens to all of us, you know, as human beings, we're so emotionally close to ourselves that it can really, you know, when we see all our, you know, we see other people's highlight reels and our own blooper tapes. I mean, that's just how it is, okay? And so it can be difficult. We might have this great skill set. We've worked hard at it. We've perfected it. We've just, and yet, you know, so, but we see the world through our eyes. We say, well, we can do it. Everybody else can do it. So it can have that much value, right? So this is why I think it's so important to get with another person, you know, whether it's a, a, a coach, a formally or informally, or uh, your sales man manager or a, a clergy person or, you know, I mean, anybody, uh, you know, a friend who you you trust, but who's not so emotionally involved with you that they can't see. Right. You know what I'm saying? And and really get to to, to understand your your strengths, your talents, your traits, your characteristics. So, yeah, because I believe there's two types of value that we all have. There's intrinsic value. That's just by being born, by being part of the world, we bring great value. But there's also market value. And I define market value as that combination of strengths, traits, talents, and characteristics that allow you to add value to others in such a way that you will be compensated for it. We all have these assets of values, uh, assets of value, excuse me, but we don't, oh, we're not always so good at recognizing. Mm -hmm. um, wow. You know, and where do you think you learned all this, put this all together into your, your system and programs? from some of your stuff, but also some of the great gurus, right? Putting it together to what you are today. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, since I, since I began my, my um, self-education project, I guess, which, which was when I was in sales, when I started, I mean, I've been an avid reader, studier, student. Um, so I, you know, I learn from so many different sources, uh, but I'm always trying to learn and always trying to study and, and, uh, you know, improve and so forth. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I certainly, uh, couldn't have made any of this stuff up on my own. I'm not that smart. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm a good student. I, I, <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm a good student in terms of natural gifts. I'm really not in that way. I think one thing that helps me be an effective teacher is it because things don't come quickly to me and it takes me a while i have that natural sense of empathy for others who who take time and so i can teach on that level but uh but yeah there's a, a lot of studying and a lot of people who who uh, i could name as as mentors who haven't been alive for you know since the stoics right <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's so funny because you just talked about the fact that 
people need somebody like on the outside looking in, right? Mm -hmm. Because we think whatever gifts it is we have, wherever we excel, whatever we've been given, we think everybody's like that. Like, you know, because it comes so naturally to us. And then just now you said that things are not a natural gift for you or or you're not seeing right. the uh, how great your natural gifts are. So I'm going to be your mentor right now and tell you <laughs> some of what you said that is who you are. Like, good for you. Like, own <laughs> it, uh, right? It, it is who you are because um, not everybody can do what you do. Uh, otherwise, you know, everybody just be a speaker and write books, but not everybody <laughs> can do what you do. Well, so thanks. you certainly had to bring your own information in as well as gleaning information from, from the greats, from so many people. I'm, I'm sure even people who haven't written books, you learn from and grow from. And, and, and everyone, you, we can, yeah, we can learn from all others. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Kim, I wanted you to ask your love question as the final question for today. Okay, great. Bob, first of all, thank you so much for everything. You've j- This has just been packed full of information. Great, thank great you. information. So appreciate it. I appreciate it all. Love your books. Love what you're doing. Um, so uh, I lived a year trying to figure out the true meaning of love. I'd, I'd uh, gone through cancer, lost my husband to cancer four months later, and um, I uh, wondered what love was. So I dedicated a year. I went to Haiti and did this and found out things about love that I don't think anybody knows and, and myths about love, but love is so universal. And one of the things about love is that you don't hang it up in a closet when you get home or when you get to the office, you don't put it on a hook. It's who you are. And I think it goes back to authenticity. And I think it also goes back to um, love is not self-seeking. You know, you're seeking the good of others. And so I'm curious with everything that you do, where does love play a role in this? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think coming from a um, premise, if you, I don't know if that's the right word, but coming from, let's say, a position of seeing the world through a lens of love is about the most powerful thing we can do. You know, there's, there's based and again, I didn't make this up. This is something I had heard, but you know, you're either coming from a place of love or a place from fear or, or a place of fear. Okay. And when you come from a place of love, you're in a, that doesn't mean everything's going to go great and everything's going to go right and everything's going to, but it means that you are, are, have certainly created that benevolent context of success. Okay. When you come from a place of fear, uh, now you're living in that lack, you know, on that plane of lack, and it's a mm. lot, lot more difficult for for good, you know, to come into your life. So, to the degree that we can live, you know, that we can come at everything from a place of love, uh, I think we're nine steps ahead of the game in a ten step game. Wow, great That's, answer, great, yeah. thank you, fantastic, Bob. Where's the best place people can purchase your books and learn more about you? Where's the best place to go? Uh, Berg, B-U-R-G dot com is probably the uh, the best place. And while they're there, they can subscribe to my free daily impact email that I send out Mondays through Fridays. Fantastic. And what would you say, what advice would you offer people to become more of a giver in sales? I think it's always understanding. And we we, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think it's it's so very important. It's understanding that value is always in the eyes of the beholder. 
It's not what we think is of value about our product or service or or that which we offer. It's not what we think others should think about our product or service or that uh, the, the other that we have. It's what they think. And as human beings, since we all see the world from our own unique viewpoint, what I call our belief system, okay, we it, we we sort of think that other people see the world pretty much the same way we do, and it just isn't true. So we've got to be willing to to discover what they and you know what is sales. Sales is simply discovering what the other person needs, wants, or desires, and helping them to get it. To do that, we've got to be able to focus on what they need, want, and desire, not what we do. And that's when we're asking the right questions come into play, and then listening in order to really dig deep. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks again, Bob. It was a great, and Zig Ziglar talks about that, asking those right questions. Oh, And then all the different things. It's just, it's it being a great student in the game that you did to build your brand today, whatever it is, is amazing, Bob. And definitely look forward to uh, chatting again. So thanks again for stopping by. I love it. Thank you both all for right. having me. Appreciate it. All right. That's a special soundcast, the Neil Haley Show and the Love is Podcast, guys. Take Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast with our host, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, well, we we dodged the hurricane last night. We only got three and a half inches of rain, and and uh, everything's fine. So it's a great, beautiful, sunny day today out in North Carolina. Fantastic. And we're going to kind of go delve into more about the 401k. It's getting scary, right? Absolutely, because it's very, very important for people to understand what's going on with their 401k because it's not what they think it is. So I've prepared a short uh, short uh, PowerPoint. Let me bring it up. All right. And that's uh, it is a scary thing when you talk about the 401k, Alan, because uh, we it's so surprising how they're getting away with this when all these things are happening with other ways of investing, for sure. Okay, can you see that? Yes. Okay. And I, I was talking to um, a friend of mine, and he, he was talking about his... Uh, 401k and everything. And so I showed him uh, some information I've got. He said, my God, I had no way. I didn't even think I was paying a fee in my 401k. I said, well, that's the problem. Everybody doesn't think they're paying a fee in their 401k. The fees in the 401k, like I said before, Neil, a 1% fee in a 30-year period will reduce your income by one third. And the average fee in a 401k is 2.99%. People do not know this. They don't, they don't understand it. Uh, but I want to go ahead and get started on this. Herbert Whitehouse, along with uh, Ted Binion, his father of 401k, said it's a disaster. It needs to be replaced. He's one of the chorus of nearly 401 supporters who have changed their minds. Recent studies reveal how pre-retirees at all income levels are falling short and extremely short. And I'll show you here in a minute of the money they need to have to be able to retire. Fully, listen to this. Fully half of these those people between the ages of 50 and 64 have less than one year of their income saved. That's a good, that's a disaster waiting to happen. One article in Wall Street Journal mentions that financial experts recommend that people amass at least eight times their annual salary to retire. Understand this, even if you had a million dollar nest egg, it would provide you only $28,000 a year at the current recommended withdrawal rate of 2.8%. Now, let me ask you this. How many times? How many times of your annual income have you saved for your retirement, Neil? Uh, I don't. That's definitely not that many. I'd say three or four. But that's again. But I'm not going to tell you where my retirement's going. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're primarily saving the way most people do in their retirement accounts, 
have the unpredictability of the rise and fall in value of the stock market, you have no, no clue what your retirement accounts will be worth when you're ready to tap into them. And that's the biggest reason the 401k and your IRAs will fail because we, we encounter risk, sequence return risk. And that's the number one problem with that. Recent volatility in this market has not been kind to 401k investors. The average 401k balance held with fidelity climbed 23% to just $97,200 last year. And the average IRA account lost even more. The reality is that if you don't know the guaranteed value of your retirement savings on the day you retire, then you don't have a plan. I, sh I show people have a plan. You've got to have a plan in your retirement, college, whatever you do in life, you've got to have a plan. If you don't have one, make one up. If you do have one, improve on it. It's not too late to take control of your financial future, though. How would it feel to have tax-free access to your retirement savings so you can shield shield yourself from the, from the income from the coming tax tsunami? I can't even talk today. Know the guaranteed minimum value of retirement savings on the day you plan to tap into them at every point along the way. You can't find that out with a stock portfolio. Have your nest egg grow by a larger dollar amount every year, and that's guaranteed. Never worry about another market crash. will wipe out 30 50% of your hard-earned savings again because we're not connected to, to the market. Be able to access your retirement savings when and how you want with no penalties, no restrictions for accessing your money too soon or waiting too long. With a 401k or an IRA, if you access it before 59 and a half, it's a 10% penalty. And it, it, there's just other things in there. Also, a stock market portfolio cannot protect you from the other risk in retirement. And when I'm talking about that, the number one retirement, the number one fear retirement, Neil, is running out of money before you run out of life. A stock port portfolio cannot do that. That is only accomplished with insurance and insurance products. Sequence of returns risk, which will decimate your retirement. And people, I've not found one financial planner that tell my clients about sequence returns risk because they're worried about getting a fee, uh, whether the client makes money or not. And that's the one thing. If if you have sequence returns risk and you have a loss in the first three years when you start taking money out, you're going to you're going to be decimated because what's happening? You start out a four percent distribution rate. Your, your market, I mean, your four hundred one k goes down plus the fees they charge, and now you have to take a larger distribution rate on a decrease in asset. And if it goes down for two or three years in a row, uh, you can't. There's a that's something you can't recover from. Of course, there's always market risk. The market goes up and down. Yes, it always comes back, but it always goes down too. And it depends on when you retire. We always have government and tax risk. And it's like I said before. There's a congressional budget office report mm -hmm. out that if you uh, if you don't think taxes are going to go up, we had a 31 trillion dollar deficit back in. Um, last fall, and they said, if we don't increase taxes overall by 66%, we can't even pay the interest on the debt. And right now, Neil, the debt is at $32.5 trillion. And there's another thing called mm -hmm. withdrawal rate risk. If you have withdrawal rate risk, you don't have any, uh, you don't have any other buckets of money to go from. You're taking all your retirement from your, your uh, stock portfolio. That doesn't work. Longevity risk, which is a risk multiplier, plus many others, because you can't control longevity risk with a stock portfolio, because it doesn't it doesn't guarantee any uh, any uh, 
any risk. It, it will mm -hmm. not eliminate any risk in, in retirement. And that people just don't understand that. I think it's time to people to, for people to think outside the box of conventional financial planning and quit listening to the propaganda of Wall Street and those are those advisors who are paid to fee whether you make money or not. It's time to become educated on the financial strategies the wealthy, the tax knowledgeable, and banking institutions have been using for years. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, it's common sense and it's information. I, as I said before, Neil, this information ought to be taught in high school, but it's not. not. But it, it's a uh, it's an amazing thing when people, uh, you know, they don't. Uh, when I talk to them, they just say, "Oh, you're trying to sell me something." Well, well, yeah, maybe I'm trying to sell you something, but I'm trying to protect you too. And when I show people this, they don't have any idea what's going on. Why hasn't anybody ever told me this before? I mean, it's it's the same thing every time. Why hasn't anybody ever told me this before? People need to to wise up. And seek outside. I mean, think outside the box of conventional financial planning, because if you don't, you're not going to have a secure retirement. Probably. I mean, you've got to have guaranteed income in retirement. It's it's been proven by Harvard studies. If you have guaranteed income in retirement, you live live a less stressful, more healthy, happier, and a longer life, without a doubt. But I keep stressing this over and over. I keep stressing it on our podcast. Uh, there's other things that, you know, I, I stress on our podcast that are very important for people, not only in retirement, but before. But give, somebody give me a call, 910-551-1046, or email me at strategicwealth0 at gmail.com, and I'll be able to help anybody out there. Appreciate it, Alan. Another great show, and it's stuff that definitely we need to think about. Thanks for stopping by. Well, I appreciate it, Neil. Thank you very much. All right, that was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? I know you're excited about our guests. I got the chance to chat with them years ago on radio tours, but, I mean, they're doing some amazing things that continue growth, and uh, Kim, introduce our guests. Yes, I have been so excited about our guest today, Neil. Corey, huh? I adore you. Willie, Aww. you're great, but Corey, you're my girl. <laughs> Let me tell you, but Willie and Corey Robertson from Duck Dynasty, but not just from Duck Dynasty, from so many things. You guys have done so many things. Got a new movie coming out, The Blind, that we're going to talk about. I am so pleased to meet you both and so impressed with, with the things that you do. You've got this great family, and they're a great family because you worked at it. You know, families don't just become great, but you guys have put in the work, you put in the hours, written some great books about it. You've helped so many other families along the way with great advice and just giving of yourselves in so many ways. And you must be one of the busiest families on the face of the <laughs> earth. Like, what is life like for you? Is it crazy? Well, first of all, thank you. I feel like that was the nicest introduction we've ever had. That was so, so great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, life is a little bit crazy and busy. It's I always say it's never boring in the Robertson house. That's for sure. There's always something happening. We have a big family and it just is growing by the second. It feels like we've got another grandbaby due this month. So yeah, life's happening and um, got a lot of fun projects going on as well. How do you keep it, everything organized in the house so it doesn't become a chaos or it's organized chaos, I'm sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> organized chaos. Yes. And lots of help. Everybody pitches in, everybody does their thing. Willie's the cook in the house. He keeps the organized, the kitchen organized and, and going. And when he's gone, it all, that part all falls apart. I'm eating like, you know, whatever piece of toast I can find or whatever when he's out of town. <laughs> Apples and peanut butter are kind exactly. of my go-to. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of nice to have a cook in the house. So grandparenting, so parenting and grandparenting. I remember before my first child was born, everybody would say, oh, just wait, just wait. And I thought, oh, I already loved the baby. You know, what are you talking about? Just wait. And then my child, child was born and I went, oh, did my mom love me like this? Like it was <laughs> right. You remember that feeling? Yes. Well, and then grandparenting, you know, people would say, just wait, just wait. And I'm like, oh, I've got kids. I know. I know what it feels like. And then when my first grandchild was born, it was like the moment my child was born times 10. Mm -hmm. Isn't it just the craziest? And you've got another one coming. So how, how many grandbabies does that make for you? That'll be seven. And it's so fun. And Willie's the cutest granddad ever. <laughs> yeah, we've got, uh, they all live pretty close. So they're over at the house a lot for sure. Yeah. So Willie, how do you feel being called a granddad now and all that, you know? What I really you... don't. Yeah, I don't mind it. I like it. Yeah, it's just, I can see so much of my kids and, and them. And so that's what makes it really neat. Also with a whole new uh, lease on life as well. So yeah, they've all got their little personalities. And so just watching how they're, how they're starting to grow and you know, who they remind me of, or if they're like even their mom or dad, uh, which some of the moms or dad, we're still trying to get to know them. You know, it's, you know, it's been a few years just since they married in the family. So it's real fun. And um, yeah, it's just exciting to see where, where they're headed. Awesome. Yeah, it can, it can be interesting watching, watching how your kids parent, right? I mean, it's a, it's a whole different thing, but those grandbabies, so I'm sure they have names for you. Did they come up with what they call you or did you want to be called something special? What do the kids call you guys? Yeah, they call me Dubs, uh, I guess for Willie for the W. Um... <laughs> yes, Willie's Dubs and I'm KK. I started out K-Mama. And um, it just kind of evolved into KK. So I feel like we'll see. We'll see which one sticks. But right now it's KK. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm Uma, by the way, like Uma Thurman. So oh. the first, isn't that cute? Love you know, when, it. When my oldest so grandchild, cute. who now has graduated from high school, when they could talk, you know, you just say, say grandma, say grandma. And it was came out Uma. And so Uma has stuck. That's it. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, Willie, how do you think the brand from Duck Dynasty has become a lifestyle brand? How did you guys really kind of figure that out so that you make a difference in the world, but also become and get the word out so much? What do you think was that process from, you know, the success of the show to now a brand lifestyle? Well, I think authenticity was a big key to it. Um, you know, and I think people saw the show. They they actually saw a lot of themselves in our show, some of their family members or you know it seems it's funny people tell me like I've, my dad's just like your dad or our mom's like your mom is or you know we've got a crazy uncle uh kind of like uncle Sai. and so they or they see the like even with Corey and i's life with the just all the busyness and you know with the kids and trying to run a business and so i think people did see themselves in there but they also saw things perhaps that they uh wanted to strive to do probably just the simplest was the family dinner 
uh, it just seemed like so many people have gotten away from that. And they, you know, everybody tends to be running and gunning and, you know, they just don't sit and have those times to share. And so, and with the family prayer also, you know, at the end of the show, um, so some of it was just kind of, I guess, old timey things. And, uh, and so it, it, as far as a brand goes, it allowed us to take that, you know, to show people more and help people more and, um, you know, and put that in, uh, to products or books or podcasts or whatever that is, you know, it's that, you know, that kind of, um, faith and family kind of idea, uh, mixed in along with your business, um, which is kind of what the show is about. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You know, there's, I think part of what made it so special in my mind is that you did so openly share that it wasn't something that you hid. You know, I, I, feel like in so many shows, you know, they try to stay away from talking about Jesus, talking about things of faith at all. And for you guys to just be so open and and share your hearts uh, is, I think, such a key component because we need to hear it more. People need to know that it's okay to share, like, mm-hmm. don't shy away from it. Just wear your heart on your sleeve and be the person, be authentic and be the person that you are. And you guys definitely have captured that, you know, authenticity, which is uh, rare. I think it's rare. Mm-hmm. I think when you when you have something going, when you're doing it, it seems like, well, everybody's like this. You know, this is just normal behavior, but it's not. I'm here to tell you it's not. You you guys are the real deal and you don't see that a ton. And I appreciate that a lot about you. And so the roots, though, that you came from, Willie, the, the movie, The Blind, is um, incredible, first of all, but the story of your parents, and was it your, did your grandson play you in the movie? He did, yeah, my my oldest son's son played me in the movie, which was really neat to see uh, me being portrayed mm-hmm. as a two-year-old from my grandson, so uh, yeah, that was one of the really cool parts, and we had a couple of parts in the movie like that where people played uh, different folks from our family for different people in there, and so yeah, that was real neat. And as far as what you said about the 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 show is that we, which also is about the movie as well, which is we're you know we try to act a certain way because that's what we learn from the Bible. That's what we learn from the teachings of Jesus. And so it comes up a lot. So it was going to be really hard to film a show or talk to us. I think very long without hearing where faith, you know, that that faith element's going to come through uh, because it's it's how we manage our lives is is through that, you know, and so. If someone gets a little off kilter, will uh, someone else will remind them? <laughs> yeah, hey, this is what the Bible says about this, and you know, and so that just in in our life, it's constant, and I'm sure in everybody's life, it's constant. And if you don't have that foundation to go to, if you don't have that, you know, word to go to, I can see how people's lives could really get messed up and you know, uh, going on the wrong path. And so, which is where with the blind, you know, it's the portrayal of Phil's life and mom's life at the at one point in life did not have that. And so how that train just skidded off the tracks and crashed big time in numerous ways. But, you know, the, the biggest was their marriage um, because had that not stayed together, then our whole lives will look different. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be on this podcast or this thing today. You know, we wouldn't be here because there would be no business. There would have been no show, you know, and who knows. 
So uh, it's really the appreciation. I think even the dinner scenes on Duck Dynasty for us was always an appreciation that the family stayed together, you know, that that dad was sitting at the end of the table because there was a time when he wasn't. And that's what the movie really portrays that and shows that, man, this thing could have went either way. And I think a lot of people see that in their lives. um, And hopefully it'll help people to realize you're never too far. You can you know, you can be redeemed. And so, um, yeah, it's a tougher movie. It's tough because it's not like Duck Dynasty. Duck Dynasty is the, I feel like it's the the good of what happened by uh, this painful stuff in the past. And, um, but again, we just wanted to share it with, with the world and say, Hey, here it is. And here was our family. This is, you know, it worked out good. God is good. And, um, but here's a time in our, our family's life that, that didn't look good. Yeah, there's an episode, there's an episode of Duck Dynasty that um, I think still holds a title for the most watched unscripted show of all time. And that's the episode it's called, it's titled Told Duck Do His Part. And it's the episode where, where Phil and Kay renew their vows. And it was such a special moment for our family. And, you know, looking back, I haven't watched that episode in a long time, but I remember the day we did that, we were all very emotional because we knew that you know, had Phil and Kay not had this moment that the movie portrays where, you know, their life turned around and they chose to stay together, you know, they chose repentance and forgiveness, which is hard things. Those are two really hard things to to choose, but they chose those two things and they kept their family together. And had that not happened, we would not be sitting there on Doug Dynasty, you know, making a show where they renewed their vows. So it was really special to our family. Then it was special that it became kind of the most watched unscripted show of all time because and I think that also spoke to what people want to see you know in this world I think entertainment so so much is is dark and 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 um tears families apart and things like we watch these train wrecks but really whenever we did our show I think it spoke to like we're all wanting to see something positive and hopeful and faith-filled and all that and while the blind does show the hard times it shows the train wreck, but it shows that redemption and that turn and what can happen in your life when you do turn your life to jesus wow you know having this story out here was it a challenge to say that as a family to come up with to do this project because then it's really going into the darker side that you don't see always on the reality show right yeah yeah for sure we, we talked about it um uh with the production company and we were like is this we want to start out with, you know, which is the story of Phil and Kay. Um, and obviously we had to talk to them to see if they wanted to share with the world their darkest times in life, which is, which is very difficult. You know, I think in, in Christianity and the church, even, you know, we're taught, you know, once your, your past is in the past and you you look forward and you don't look back. And so there's all these principles, I think that are good principles for anyone to live by. Um, but for them, you know, to be able to, even to go back there, you know, mentally and as a couple and that, to be able to put that out and deal with that pain again was, was difficult. And but you know, at the end of the day, mom and dad said, well, if it, if it helps someone else, you know, um, if it can help their marriage or if it can help their family stay together, or if it can help someone who has really lost all hope. Um, and I'm sure we all probably know those people or, or we are those people. And so to able to put that out to help and Phil and Kay have always been, like that you know they've always uh, been open there's nothing in the movie i saw that i haven't heard them say you know firsthand you know uh to a lot of people and so they've they've really been open with their lives and sharing it and uh but i will say it's a little more difficult seeing it in pictures and seeing it with people playing it out and so i was just thankful that they did share that 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a lot of guts, I think, Corey. I, hopefully I didn't just cut you off, but mm -hmm. it, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of guts. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people, uh, everybody goes through hard times, mm -hmm. but some people go to the very bottom, you know, really just hit rock bottom. And that that's pretty much what happened. Like it, it could have, like you've said a couple of times, gone one way or the other. And uh, you never want to think about if it would have gone the other way. So praise the Lord, it went the way that it did. But for your folks, for your family to be that open and really share, I know that this film is going to help people. It's it's definitely going to help marriages. It's definitely going to help people strengthen their faith. And uh, I love you talking about your family dinners because you, coming together and sharing a meal, there is something just so special about that. And it's almost a lost tradition. I, I grew up with Sunday dinners. You know, it was always Sunday dinner was a, was a big deal. And I love those Sunday dinners. And but it, I don't know many families that are doing that anymore. I what when did you guys start? Like, when did you, the dinner tradition start for you in your home? And and uh, what does it really mean to you? Well, for us, we in our family, we did that a lot. We um we had most all most meals together um we were poor when we lived at the end of a dead end street uh, road <laughs> dirt road uh beside a river and so there wasn't a lot of options we didn't we didn't have a lot of money and so we didn't eat out that much and no one was delivering down no there. no one was delivering food uh, no door yeah, dash we were, no door dash down there next. Yeah, it was many miles before even a gas station and so yeah you just had to prepare and 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 part of the eating out as well, you know, uh, mom could cook really well and dad could cook. So it was, you know, I think they like we liked our food anyway, the way we cooked it better. So. Um, so, yeah, we just we had those meals and we had those times and there was like uh, it wasn't organized story time, but it was just natural story time. There wasn't a lot of there just wasn't a lot of distractions. There wasn't many TV channels. We didn't have any computers or anything like that. So it was just that was the time to really catch up and um I say catch up. It's just time to talk about what happened throughout the day. And so uh, they were great storytellers, my grandparents as well. And so we would, as kids, we'd just sit around and listen, you know, and get our chance to tell a story, you know, and we'd talk about uh, uh, what hunt we had just done or the fish or how it happened today, you know, with the nets and how many they caught. And generally we were eating exactly what was being talked about, you know, by, that had been cleaned and now it's on the table. Um, so yeah, that was just, that was ours. And it was really always, uh, there was never a time you took your plate and went anywhere else except for the table. I just remember that wasn't really allowed. You, you sat, you took your place at the table and it wasn't like, I'm going to, I'm going to eat this in the, by the TV. I, I don't, I don't ever remember anyone doing that one time growing up, which is amazing. <laughs> I think growing up for, for their family, it was kind of an essential because they lived down on the river. It, you know, food wasn't, you had to cook, you know, there wasn't like you could order pizza or whatever. And so um, it was the essential part of their life. But nowadays you, you have to create that. Like you have to make space for that and be intentional about it. And so it was really interesting when we did the show, um, we had that dinner scene at the end because that is important to our family. And we, we, we love that time together as a family. And also we, um, you know, hunt for, and that's kind of like the idea of showing that, you know, circle of life, it is part of our, a way of life and what we do, but we had that not really realizing the impact that it would make. But after that show, the show came out, so many people came to us and said, 
because of your family, because of the show, our family now is being intentional about having a prayer and sitting together around the table. So we really just saw the impact of entertainment, which kind of led us to the production company that we have now. We started Tread Lively Productions because of that, because we just saw that like, oh, just that little thing, that small thing that seems small to us of having a prayer and a time around the table made such an impact in a lot of families' lives. And people would come up with tears in their eyes and tell us about how it had impacted their family because they're being intentional about that time together. And that led us to say like, okay, like what else can we do? What else should we be doing? You know, a lot of times we can complain about entertainment and be like, oh, there's nothing good. And there's nothing I can watch as a family. But like, do we have this opportunity to actually do something about that and make more entertainment that is positive and wholesome and, and, and has elements of faith in it and hope and love and all those things that, you know, we feel like our world is yearning for. Wow. You know, and have you guys gotten a chance to see the film yet? Have they, what are your thoughts <clears throat> on yes. it? Yes. So we actually produced it ourselves. So I, we were like very involved. We were on set for most of it. We got to, you know, help do, do casting. We really, um, yeah, we were involved in every little piece of it. So I've seen it seen many a cuts. lot of times, yeah, <laughs> a lot of cuts. The first cut that came through, honestly, the first, you know, kind of the long version, we were like, oh no, oh no. Like we screwed this up. This is what's going to happen, you know? And then it just, after a lot of work, a few days of reshoots and all that, we're like, okay, we have something really, really special. So we're very proud of it. But yeah, it's been a, a lot of that was year just, process. A lot of that was just trying to get the story even just we can so we can make it palatable for people to watch and not be rated r you know because it was yeah that was a rated r kind of guy so probably more than that uh but so it was just hard to show and be real you know we didn't want to water this down mm -hmm. and make it into some cheesy thing where everything seemed to go well because most of the stories we heard were, were not good you know it's like well you know it's, it's tough stuff and so yeah just trying to make that into a movie to where people could bring their you know, their, their kids to, you know, and I said kids, I mean like mature kids. And so yeah. where they could watch it, learn from it, but also just not be so bad that it's like, Whoa, you know, this is too much. I think yeah. that, that idea that people are looking for both positivity and hope and all that, but they're also looking for real and raw and authentic and not, you know, pretending like there's something that there that you're not that whole Instagram versus reality kind of thing. It's just like, so as a family to us, it's important that we do show all of the story, you know, because I think some people can look at a family that has like success or fame or like, Oh, they all just love each other. You know, that that's not my story. And, but we want to say like, no, our story was not all perfect in this upward trajectory towards fame. You know, our story involved probably a lot of the things that your story involves as well, you know, but there is a point in your life where you can decide that you're going to make a change and you're going to make a change for that will affect generations. And we've seen that in our family, like that change that Phil and Kay made has affected generations already. Cause now we we've got grandbabies, like we talked about the first of the show. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. And it's so, so true. Like everybody has their crap, right? Everybody goes through tough times. Everybody's got something that they go through. And I think it's so uh, wonderful when people go through a tough time, come out on the other end and then use it for good. Like, uh, like you guys are doing, like what the, the movie is going to do, but what you guys do in general in your lives every day. And, uh, 
there's just something special about that because people can stay in the bad and kind of wallow in it, or they can make the choice of saying, mm -hmm. no, like this can help other people. And what I learned, because you got to learn from it, right? So what mm -hmm. I learned can help somebody else. And this movie touches on so many things. You know, it's not just the fact that your your folks almost divorced. It's it's why did they? And then and then you know the coming to the Lord and and the huge transformation that happened. But addictions that are a, a part of so many people's lives, and to play that out on a screen, you know, to with with alcohol is not how hard was that that seems like it would not be an easy thing to do. Yeah. Phil has said several times throughout this process, I'm embarrassed, you know, by that time in my life. And so that it is different. You know, I feel like we mentioned that they, they've shared these stories so many times and we've seen the impact of these stories. There's a scripture in the Bible that talks about like um, God's glory is revealed through the power of your testimony. You know, it is through we, our testimony shows how amazing God is, you know, the fact that we can come from like death to life shows the power of God. And so, um, you know, he's told, he's given his testimony. He's told that story so many times and Kay has as well, but it's one thing to do that. And then another thing to see it on a screen. And, um, there was a one podcast, we, we did a podcast kind of as a family where we, we talked about and really told a lot of these stories. And Sadie, actually, our daughter Sadie was interviewing Phil on this one. And she said, what do you think about the actor he played you? And Phil said, not much. And we were like, oh, no. <laughs> and, and then we realized he was meaning like, I didn't think much of that guy on the screen. Like when I, he saw himself on the screen in that time of his life, he, he didn't like it. You know, he didn't, he didn't want to see that part of his life. But again, he's gone back to, but if it can help somebody, if this can impact somebody's life, if somebody life turns their life around because they've seen me at my worst, then it's worth it. That's fantastic. That's the thing of telling these transformational stories. And Kim has a transformational story of, about love. Go ahead, Kim, with your question before we finish up. Yeah. So uh, my story is that I've been in business, business people, just like you guys. My my whole life started my first business when I was 18, married the man of my dreams and was very happily married, just became empty nesters. And I found out I had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And then four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he passed away six weeks after that. And it made me question some things. And one of the things was the the reality of love, the true meaning of love, because it seems like you can get 10 people in the room and get 10 different definitions, but yet John says God is love. So not that God loves, but God is love. So we should be love, right? But what does that mean? I wanted to really honor my husband by living right, by making sure I'm doing this life right. So I dedicated a year to figuring out the true meaning of love, which to be honest with you guys, I have a hard time uh, really committing to what pair of shoes I'm going to wear that day. So to, <laughs> to commit a year to something was a real mm -hmm. stretch for me. And, um, but I took uh, the love chapter, you know, love is patient, love is kind, First Corinthians 13. And I took one word a month and figured out what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And the majority of the time I was in Haiti, I was working in Haiti uh, after the earthquake and and so that's where I was doing my my research. And uh, the things that I found out about love blew my mind, rocked my world out and and changed my life. And uh, I think love so often is misunderstood. But I look at you guys and I look at your family. And if there is 
certainly there's more than one common thread, but it seems to me the biggest common thread is love. Like you guys exude it. You exude it for each other. You exude it for, um, for, for others as well. Not, not just each other. And where does love, what does love mean to you guys? And where does it play the role in your life? Where is it? Wow. I think that's great. Yeah. yeah I would, so I would probably start with first Corinthians 13. That'd mm-hmm. be a great, great uh, place to start as far as, you know, what, how we try to encompass love and, um, and what that is. And, and you're right, it's a broad word. And so it's, it's thrown around for a lot of different things. And so I think the, the true meaning, which what comes back for us is, you know, the love that Christ showed, you know, for us and, and then trying to, um, implement that in our own lives. And so, and that's where I think that's the message Phil heard. That's the message Kay heard, uh, that turned them around in that story. And, um, the dad ran it as close as he-